You go count, yeah. you know, I spent days counting money in Miami in a money house that typically had anywhere from 100 to 200 million dollars in cash at any one time. And we're counting for two, three days at a time because now when I took over as you know, as kids started amping up and changing the plan and making, you know, do faster boats, the loads got bigger, more compacted, you know. Now our pay is getting bigger. Now my pays aren't five million, they're 15, 20, 25 million. And you know, it takes time to count that kind that kind of money, man. I yeah. mean, you just don't count that your $25 million overnight. It takes a few days, even with, you know, we had three money counters going. And there would be guys, you know, Bill Carlito and his cousins and people that are there at the house. And we'd had hundreds in one bedroom, fifties in another bedroom, twenties in one bedroom, tens in another, and the fives were in the garage because, you know, five million dollars in fives would just about fill, you know, a million dollars in fives just about fill this fucking room I'm sitting in. <laughs> so fives were in the garage, but when it came to getting paid, you know, I'd sit there for days and just count, you know, count money, count money when you know, after a while, it got to pay, be a pain in the ass where, you know, I'm counting money and I should be in Colombia or in Jamaica or somewhere, you know, making another deal or solidifying another deal or helping my crew unload. But here I am stuck in this goddamn house for days counting money. The following podcast is a Carolina Boys production. Welcome back, everyone, to Crime and Entertainment. I'm your host, Hollywood Wade, and back in the studio with me, my co-host, Jaeger Yancey Tedder. I had to go all three names so they don't confuse me with Jaeger Jefferson or something. Uh, well, Jaeger Tedder is a pretty memorable name. Uh, back in the studio today, now, did you get a chance to check out our last episode there with Tim McBride last week? Did you hear part one of that crazy tale? I believe it was a part one that was heard by I, yes. <laughs> well, wait till you hear the conclusion of this, because just on the, the first part, we talked about how he, you know, got involved in this and, you know, was counting hundreds of millions of dollars and how many days it took him to do so. Now that is a fucking wow. problem that I want to have at some point in my life. I don't know about yourself. Yeah. I'll do it by hand. I can yeah. keep it right. <laughs> I'll keep it. I'll do it with my toes if I have to, but I mean, I guess that's the old saying though. The more money you make, the more problems you get because at, at a song. certain point, I mean, when you're, you're doing it like George and Diego and Tim and all those guys, when you're just putting money in rooms instead of people, yeah. <laughs> that's a problem. You're literally buying a house to put your money in. I mean, that is, that's a next level type of success right there, folks. Yeah. <laughs> they really could have got in on uh, the crypto thing a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Stash away. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, he, he talked about how he was, you know, his first load as a rookie, you know, he made five grand and then it was up to like 30. Mm. I mean, 30 grand now is a pretty decent living for some people, depending on where you're at. Yeah. I mean, you know, so that's what he was making back then. Just, just unloading boats. So, I mean. Yeah. I, I can't imagine just having access to that kind of money. It's It's got to be different, life-changing style. Uh, I'm sure, as you heard, he partied oh, with yeah. Bam Bam Bigelow, you know, back <laughs> in the day, and probably a host of others was dealing with Noriega. I mean, flying to Columbia, I mean, that's got to be a high 
flying lifestyle there to have. What, you, know, what, you know, that's one of the things that people really take away. They never take away the whole maybe getting caught part sometimes or getting hurt part sometimes or, you know, murder sometimes part. It's that high lifestyle part that just sticks out. You can tell them how bad it can go, but all they hear is, did you say the Southern Hemisphere in, in summertime? <laughs> I can get an Instagram photo. Sure. <laughs> I mean, if what's the, what's the old adage there? You're here for a good time, not for a long time. For so a long time, yeah. He definitely took that to the hilt. Now, we're going to finish off part two here. He's going to give us a little bit more description of some of his bigger loads. He's going to give us the rundown the day he got arrested, which is a f- extremely funny story. When I heard that part in his book, I was just cracking up and laughing like out of the blue. I think some people probably thought I was cracking up in real life, but I had to tell him I had my <laughs> earpiece in and what I was listening to. And then he goes on to tell us a little bit about his prison time and how all that came about and how he got his time cut short because he, he did have to do a little time, but it wasn't as much as he was planning on doing while he was in prison. He actually got his time reduced while in prison. So we'll hear about that. And then, you know, just wrapping everything up nice and neatly, he tells us some few other stories, but again, folks go out and buy the saltwater cowboy, the rise and fall of Mar- marijuana empire, Tim McBride's book. It is linked to our show notes on our YouTube so if you go down there and you look for that, you will be able to find the Amazon link directly to his book. Yeager, I highly recommend you uh, check it out as well if you haven't done so. It's a lot of good stories in that book. Are, are there any pictures in the book for me? You know, I like the comics with the pictures. Well, I, I don't know because I listened to it on Audible. I'm oh, sure. Okay. I think he is. He said in the, the first interview there was a picture of the chase boat. And what the chase boat, what he was talking about was in case they, you know, had to dump a boat that had a load on it. Yeah. They had like a super ass fast boat that was riding right beside it. So if they needed to bail out, they would just (laughs) leave the fucking boat, bail out, get in the chase boat, haul ass. And then whoever owned that boat that had all the pot in it would just call in and report it stolen. What an operation. Yeah. It's playing the game upstairs. So, right? so even there, the guy that was letting the boat still gets his boat back. Now, obviously, they're not going to leave the weed, uh, weed on there. They're going to confiscate that, but he still gets the boat back. <laughs> Tell me that weed's worth more than the boat. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I don't know. Some of these boats are pretty big. So, I mean, you know, I, I don't know what the operation went like. It was that smooth the whole time, but that is a hell of a deal there. You know, as soon as they bail out, he said, you call the guy back, tell him, hey, man, I just went outside. My fucking boat's gone, hey, you look, know? Look, I always say, like, I very example i if i was allowed to speak at a kid's school high school or whatever stories like these are it's real ingenuity and it's just a lot of thinking that goes into this is not playtime they are serious about this operation and i think there's a lesson to be learned in there but they won't let me come talk to the school because stories like this i would bring up <laughs> yeah yeah it's probably not why you've gotten very many hits on your uh your calendar there to come yeah, speak at I elementary it, school it puts you on a list uh, a no come by the school list uh, it's just the opposite of coming to speak like that if damn comedian we've seen years ago to rage and cajun after it was oh. over with uh, i do children's birthday parties too folks <laughs> <laughs> little jimmy get him on in here sit him right on my lap i got some stuff for him <laughs> all right folks let's get right into it here our part two episode of the saltwater cowboy with tim mcbride here on crime and entertainment well that that's how it evolved i guess we need to get into like how it kind of came to an end did you have any sort of inclination that you know you guys were going to be moved on or how did that come about was it a surprise or what no, there really wasn't. I mean, it, it was a surprise, actually. You know, even though there were two operations that happened, like I said, prior to to all of this in the early 80s, in 83 and 84 consecutively, because, right. you know, 
first one, like I said, you know, wasn't that, you know, just successful. And the second time they knew they were coming, everybody just sat around and waited for it to happen, you know, and then they took their lumps. But at that time they were taking the, the older generations and the, and the guys that were, were more visible, right. You know, they, uh, they even at that time still had no clue the magnitude of that, of which, you know, they had got themselves into. They didn't know that, you know, better than half the town was involved. And it was mostly the kids was doing work. They didn't have, you know, who, who would have thought that, yeah. you know? So um, when those two operations came by and then um, us kids took over, and that's a bit of a, you know, a bit of a story in, in and of itself. I had that one time um, when we did uh, the one night we did 55 tons, we brought in 110,000 pounds and we built, I think, three or four houses on the island in order to get all that stuff on the island, you know, between, and it has to happen between sundown and sunup, right. you know, when you're unloading a freighter. So, but during the daylight hours is when the shore crew takes over and we're loading them and sending them to Miami. That's when the shit gets moved in broad daylight. Yeah. You know, because we were masters of hide in plain sight. And who would suspect that almost, you know, you know, nine out of every 10 cars leaving the island, you know, or leaving Everglades City at that time were loaded with shit, you know, <laughs> nobody would have ever thought that. So, and, and and nine times out of 10, you know, we're waving at law enforcement as we're driving past them, you know, <laughs> taking this shit out of town. But um, to, uh, to you know, to, to, to do something like that, you know, was uh, was a bit of an undertaking in it. In it, uh, it took us, uh, you know, the first two generations to to get it to, you know, a workable, you know, and a successful type of operation. But when they took all those grown ups and adults finally went to prison, when they didn't realize that the kids, you know, were doing all the work. That's how the third generation of us took the kids took over when they went to prison. We did a job. I was saying we did that fifty five tons that one night and. I made $75,000 just, you know, in, in, you know, a night's work. Right. So that next day, mid morning, I'm over at the house where the shit's at, you know, just to see how it's going and, you know, this kind of thing. And, um, Daryl, one of the brothers of the second generations, whose kids I was grew up, I grew up with, he says, Hey, Timmy, you know, he says, come here. And I'm, and I'm doing this, you know, oh, fuck, here we go. <laughs> so he says, um, you know, I need somebody that I can trust, you know, and, uh, and somebody that can uh, drive this to Miami for me because it couldn't go to the spot that, that we were doing the dead drops. And that's how the, where the government came up with the term dead drop, because our guys would, our gals would drive to a plaza, like I said, in Kendall or Coral Gables or someplace like that, get out of the car, truck or van or whatever it is, it's loaded window shop for a while while, we have a guy over there pointing out, say, that's our truck. That's our car. This is us. This is us. And a Cuban guy partner would get in it, go unload it to wherever their stash was and bring it back empty. Our guys would take it back to Everglades and run as many trips as they could until that house is empty. Cause we're going to probably fill the fucker again that next night. Yeah. You know, so there was a buffer between us and the people on the other side. They didn't know where the shit in Miami was. We didn't, and they didn't know where the shit in Everglades was, you know, that kind of a thing. Yeah. But um, several days prior to this, you know, we're still working every night, you know, but during the day, several days prior to this huge load, uh, Daryl gives me and a buddy of mine, Jimmy, a, a, a chainsaw and a wrecking bar. And he points to this brand new Winnebago and he goes, I need you guys to go in there and then take and cut everything. I mean, strip this goddamn thing clean from the cabinets down. 
leave the curtains and the cabinets and everything up above it. So when you look, you know, you look in the window, you see the cabinets and the curtains on. But if you got up there and you looked in the park like that, it's (laughs) top from one window to the next like this, you know, we even took out the seats, you know, and and put, you know, about 10,000 pounds of bales in this damn Winnebago. (laughs) And it had to put airbags in the springs and inflate them. So this thing wasn't sparking the highway when you're going down to Miami with it, you know? (laughs) So Daryl says, Hey, Timmy, you know, he says, I need a favor. He says, I need somebody to drive this thing to Miami and I need it to be somebody I can trust because you got to stay there all day. And when the loads are done coming for that day, drive a car full of money back for me. But the biggest thing of it was that it couldn't go to the dead drop spot with the plaza because, I mean, you, you got within, you know, 30, 40 feet of this fucking thing. You can smell it, you know. It was, <laughs> so there was no way it was going into a plaza. So I said, okay, you know, he said, I'll give you 35 grand just to drive it over there. It's a two-hour drive. And I relented, okay, you know, whatever. And I'd always been offshore working with a chase boat. I had my way to get out of there, man. But, you know, it never, never, you know, I was never afraid of getting caught on a boatload of shit because of that boat right, right right there. That was our getaway. Well, like I said, when you're driving on the road, there's spotters. You're never alone. And, and everybody working, we had like 200 uh, two-meter radios that had five different digit combination that you could choose from and that were virtually unscannable at that time. So everybody's talking because communication is key, you know? So um, I get in this thing as behemoth and I'm driving and I had, you know, I I had to drive it to this house out in an orange grove just off of uh, Chrome Avenue, almost a homestead. And and, and I'm in a, 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 going through this orange grove and all of a sudden I see this, house that just does not belong there you know it looks like a medieval castle literally you know with the <laughs> spires and the kind of shit you know i'm thinking what the fuck is this i pull up next to the house and the, here out jumps a bunch of cuban guys and they start unloading this shit so i go in the house and i'm hanging out all day long we're playing cards and these guys are drinking and shit and i get to know a couple of the guys that were there because i'm there all day long so um, that evening I get the cars full of cash. I'm driving the cash back, you know, and you know, that gets behind me. And then, uh, several months later, here comes that second operation Everglades number two, when everybody else just all of a sudden it's over with the adults that were putting us kids to work were gone. And I, you know, not too much longer after that, I get a knock on my door. I'm living in a place called golden gate, just North of Everglades city at that time in a house that I just bought from a Cuban friend of mine. And it turns out to be this guy, Jorge, George, who I had met while I was at that house. And they found it took him. He said it took us three and a half weeks to find you because they only knew my what I looked like. And they knew my name was Timmy. So they're all over town asking, no, this guy, Timmy. And finally, they find, you know, I get a knock on the door and here's this guy, George. And he says, Timmy, you know, and I'm like, George, what the fuck? <laughs> and he says, you know, we got work to do, brother. He says, can you do this? You know, and I, I just looked at him, you know, without without skipping a beat. I said, hell yeah. You know, fuck that I know. You know, I mean, but we were the infrastructure, the kids. We were doing the work. We were humping and bumping and moving and loading and doing all the shit that needed to be done. What I didn't know at that time was what happened prior to that. Where do you go? How much do you spend? Who do you talk to? And all these connections around the Caribbean. Well, they were, um, uh, I inherited those from one of the older generations, 
you know, while they were doing, you know, mm-hmm. coming out of their time or doing their time and like that. So I got hooked up in that way. And that's how I managed to start putting the deals together and started working the guys because, of, because of that, just that one day and it, you know, that serendipitously just sort of fell right into it. Man. You know, I didn't choose to be it. I wasn't looking to be the guy that was putting everybody to work, but all of a sudden here I am the guy flying with, you know, two Cuban partners out with a private jet that uh, Carlito and Leo owned a corporate Lear. And, you know, it's only a five and a half hour, you know, at the most five and a half hour flight to Columbia, you know, so there was, there, there came a point in time where, you know, I did their first load for them. And then I found myself, you know, flying to Columbia in the morning, picking out, you know, 20, 30, 40 tons of stuff um, and uh, flying back home, driving back to Naples and sitting across the bar, you know, here in town with, you know, my girlfriend bartender, you know, by nine o'clock that night, you know, and she, she or none of my friends had known I'd been to Columbia that day, around. you know, so that's just, that's just, you know, a day in the life of man, that sort wow. of thing. So, so when you got busted, like, how did that come about though? Like, how did they just catch you in the act or somebody roll, somebody ran? How did that come about? Yeah, you know, I mean, it was, uh, there were so many people. I mean, there were so many pothaulers at that time. Because like I said, you know, there were five crews actively working in those days. And, you know, like I say, it takes as many as 70 plus people per crew to make right. one job work. So there's a lot of pothaulers, you know, and. And, you know, and everybody's when we're working night after night after night after night, the reason half the town's involved in it is because you can't keep working the same people, man. You're just going to kill their asses. Yeah. You know, but, um, you know, that being said, um, there had been, you know, one of the guys that was working really it was, a, was, was part of the family in Everglades. And I won't say any names because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not up to me to, to implicate those that were or were not implicated. But, um, this individual wound up, you know, and, and what guys do when they're not working in Holland pot, nobody gives a shit. I don't care what the crew's doing as long as they're there when it comes time to work, you know, mm-hmm. well, he's down in Columbia making these cocaine deals on his own and he gets fucked up and winds up in prison and, co- you know, in Me- in, uh, in Colombia, uh, in, in, uh, in Medellin and the U S government realizes that he's part, he's from Southwest Florida. He's part of the crew. So they go down there and make him a deal. They say, look, we'll get you out of this hellhole of a prison you're in. Here's what we need you to do for us. So they send him right back home and he gets right back into work. And none of us have a clue that he'd ever been in trouble. He'd been doing whatever and like that. So he actually became the chase boat driver for our job that I had set up to be unloaded on Everglades city and pine Island was 57,000 pounds. And I decided to split the load. Half go to Pine Island in the north and half go to Everglades City in the south. Well, he was in on the job right from the beginning. And, you know, you know, needless to say, so was the fucking law. Yeah. So they kind of knew what was going on. And that night on Pine Island, I decided to go work with the Pine Island crew because they weren't my crew. Right. I trusted that the guys in Everglades knew what they were doing. I didn't need to be there. I wanted to be with the Northern crew because I had not worked with them, you know, all that much. So I wanted to kind of keep a handle on that firsthand. So we're out in the woods in, in the middle of nowhere in Pine Island where nobody should be in, a, in, a, in an old rickety dock out in the woods. And I backed up a, a U-Haul trailer, a truck, you know, a box truck back in through the woods, through the trees and waited for the boats, the little boats to start coming. They'd show up, we'd unload that, throw that in, and then the 
you know, in the boats and that scenario started and about five, six boats had come and all of a sudden there's no more boats showing up. And I'm wondering what the fuck's going on. There's no more chatter on the radio. Nobody's talking. Voice comes over my radio and there's this one of my spotter out by the road says, Timmy says a car just pulled in here, you know, backed out and went back down the road. And I'm thinking, you know, there's no way anybody should even be out here, man. <laughs> right. You know, so I walk out to the, through the woods, to the road. And I'm saying, you know, he said, yeah, he just pulled right up in here and, you know, turned around, backed out and left, you know, and I looked behind me and everybody that was at the dock is now standing behind me. Cause this ain't right. You know, we weren't standing there for, for two minutes and all of a sudden it sounded like 40 cars coming down the road. You could hear them and everybody just took off running because we know shit was going to hit the fan. And where I was standing, looking at the road, if you ran to the left, there was a pine tree forest that you could run and run your ass off and just keep running. Right. Well, to the right was about two acres of palmetto field and palmettos aren't, but maybe waist high if they're, if they're even, you know, a little bit higher than that. And which way do I go? I go the palmetto way. <laughs> I'm screwed. <laughs> and, and that night a, a Cuban guy came in with the load. It wasn't uncommon for guys to hitch a ride and come in with a load, you know, illegals or whatever like yeah. this. And he runs the same way as me. And <laughs> I didn't get, you know, I didn't get from where we were standing on the little, you know, pathway or driveway, if you will, you know, for the cars and trucks to, you know, to come into. I didn't get 25, 30 feet away and I had to get down right away. I'm down, you know, trying to get down below these palmettos. And I can see the guys getting out of the vehicles. I can see their feet, the officers. There's some running that way. There's some running over there. He says, I'll go back. You know, I hear all these guys doing this shit. And I can hear this fucking Cuban guy crunching through the palmettos back here behind me. <laughs> crunch, crunch, crunch. And I'm thinking to myself, motherfucker, just stop. Stop what you're doing. Because if they take off running after him, they're going to trip over my ass because I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting right there. I can see them. You know, that's how close I am. But it's dark out. So all, you know, for the next three hours or so, I'm sitting there listening to it. And when I sat down, I didn't sit down. I was just hunched down on my, you know, crouched down, you know, in a squat. And the dry, crunchy, dry palmetto branches that I was standing on, every time I moved, it would crackle and crunch. So I had to wait for somebody to, to talk or shut a door or a car to drive by where I could finally ultimately get my feet out from under me because they were dead. Blood had gone out of them and I could, they were numb. I couldn't walk. I'm just, you know, if, if, if I wanted to, I couldn't. <laughs> so I get down and I get the blood pumping it back into my legs and shit and sitting there. And then and I'm listening to all this take place and they're not catching anybody. Cause you know, they're everybody running like a motherfucker <laughs> and um, the sun's starting to come up and I'm thinking, Oh my God, you know, if I, if I wait another, you know, 15 minutes, the sun's going to be up and, here I am, you know, I'm right there. You, you can see me. That's how close I was. So sun's come up and I had heard prior, you know, a few minutes earlier, a car had pulled up out, out front on the road and had stopped, but it was still running. And the guy, I was watching this uh, beige Bronco come and go and the Bronco came back and the guy got out. I could see his feet. He got out and the person who was in the car on the road said, you know, what are you doing? Where, where are you going? And he said, this guy in the Bronco says, well, I'm going to walk back here and see what we got, you know, back here in the woods. And the guy goes, wait, I'll go with you. And I'm thinking, 
well, okay, this could be my <laughs> chance, you know, but I didn't know if there was anybody else in that car out in the street other than the one guy. Cause if I lift my head up and look and he sees me, one of two things are going to happen. You know, he's either going to shoot me or I'm going to run him over and knock his ass the fuck out and take off running like a bat out of hell. <laughs> <laughs> and as soon as those two guys took off and started walking back to where, you know, we were unloading at the dock and where my box truck was at, I kind of, you know, lifted my head up real slowly like that. I looked, there was nobody in that cop car. And dude, I took off, man. <laughs> I went across the road through the ditch and I went into the woods and I ran. I ran till I could I couldn't breathe anymore, you know. Dove under a pile of bushes and covered myself up with leaves and shit. And I'm laying there and I'm, you know, all day long, I'm you know, I'm waiting for somebody to catch up with me and and nab my ass because I'm thinking they so many guys, you know, so many cops out there whoever they were and somebody had to have seen me i thought but apparently nobody did so i'm laying there and you know i'm all covered up and i laid there most of the day and and uh, i'm listening to the helicopter flying around i'm listening to them towing the box truck out from the trees and the branches and bang 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 you know shit like this and um this is the this is the part where you know i kind of you know dozed off because i'm up all night <laughs> and um I'll, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I, I got this urge, you know, I haven't taken a shit since, the, <laughs> you know, the afternoon before. So, you know, now no better time than ever. So I get out, you know, I'm doing my thing and I got up. Now, all I've got is a wad of hundred dollar bills in my pocket to wipe my ass with. <laughs> and I think it took me like 600 bucks to wipe my ass <laughs> and just left that shit there. You know? So I. I moved over back on the trees and covered myself up and all you know, my face with the leaves and branches like this. And I just kind of dozed off, you know, cause I'm waiting for, you know, nightfall so I can get the hell out of there. And, um, I don't know how it happened or, or, or if, if a noise or, or the movement woke me, but I happened to just open my eyes and I looked over and there's a, a bobcat, you know, about three feet from me. And he's stepping like this, looking right at my, you know, right at my face and he sees my eyes open and it stops oh, and shit. i'm thinking holy fucking shit man i just ran my ass off out of, you know to get away from cops and now i'm gonna get attacked by this fucking thing <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, i didn't have a clue what to do other than you know it just came to me and i just you know come out of the, the leaves like that and i yelled ah! like that and this thing flipped like three times and it took <laughs> off like it was shot out of a fucking cannon <laughs> it just took off and left me there you know so i waited the rest of the afternoon till dark and you know i walked up to the fish a fish house three miles down the road you know on the side of the road you know through all the bushes and shit this is that next night yeah and i get to the fish house like two in the morning and there's people in the fish house. There's lights on in the parking lot, but there's no activity outside or anything like that. So I'm sitting there trying to figure out, and there's a phone booth. You know, this is before cell phones. Right. There's a phone booth in the parking lot of this fish house. And I'm, I'm thinking, how the fuck am I going to get to that phone booth, you know, without somebody spotting me or, you know, or, you know, it would just look weird. It's some guy at two in the morning, you know, <laughs> shows up out of nowhere in the bushes. You know, I picked all this shit off of me. And while I was doing that, two shrimp boats pulled up. And their crews unload and they get off and they line up at the phone booth to call their rides to, you know, hey, we're home to come get them. So I thought, oh, this is perfect. So I just, you know, kind of strolled out from the trees and went down there and got in line with them. You know, and when it was my turn, I got in there and opened the phone book up to the taxis and I 
booked it. I called the first taxi cab number <laughs> I found in the book. And this guy said, dude, I told him where I was at. I said, you know, come and get me. You know, he said, you know, I got to get, you know, I got to get out of here. You know, it's time to go home. I just got in from fishing. Blah, blah. And the guy says, you know what? He says, dude, I'm, I'm kind of hell and gone from where you are. He says, you don't, sure you don't want to call somebody else. And I said, look, dude, I don't have time for this shit. You know, just show up. I'll give you $700 on top of whatever your fee is. If you just show the fuck up and get me, you know, get me home. <laughs> and he says, uh, you, you, you're not shit me. And I said, no, dude, I said, I'm serious as a heart attack, you know, come on. So I hung the phone up and I'm standing around out there. You're mingling with the guys. But as I'm on the phone talking, here comes a sheriff car oh, shit. through the parking lot real slow. And he goes around like this and he goes out and then he takes off, you know, and I'm, I'm just about shitting myself the whole time. <laughs> And that's what I told the guy. I said, "Get your ass here now as quick as you can." So it was about forty minutes later. Here he show, here he comes, and the first thing I did was threw seven hundred dollars in his lap, got in the back seat, and I got down like this, and I said, "Let's go, <laughs> get me out of here." So we drove into Punta Gorda, which is you know not too far away, just a little bit south of Pilot Island, to a hotel, and that's where I spent the night. Man, I wound up getting my ass out of there. <laughs> so, but that that wasn't the end of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say. Kind of the deal that y'all were able to pull off because when they arrested everybody, what were they originally wanting to charge you? They was wanting to give you life, right? Or pretty close to it? Oh, yeah. Multiple life because, you know, we were operating for all those years as kids, you know, and the adults and stuff. And as we're learning through this, you know, the early 70s, you know, late 70s and the early 80s. The um, the guidelines, the federal sentencing guidelines for things such as, you know, what we were doing. Uh, weren't really having any, you know, dramatic effect on, you know, stopping and halting what it was they were trying to stop, which was the smuggling, because the sentences were, were such, like I said earlier, you know, a guy get caught on a boatload of the shit or even a truck or a carload of the shit, and they'd give him, you know, 12, 14 months, you know, minus a good time, minus statutory good time, you know, you're talking about seven, eight months, and then you're back home again. So right. we just pay the bills, keep the lights on, keep the family fed, if that's the case or whatever, and, you know put you right back to work when you get home. But little did we know as, you know, as the years were going by, here it is in 1987, September 1st, 1987, they changed the federal sentencing guidelines across the board to mandatory minimums. Now, if you're caught with, you know, the amounts that we were dealing with, you know, and then they put the amount at 200 kilograms, uh, 2000 kilograms. If you're caught with more than that, now you have a mandatory, you have a, 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 a an indictment with four counts on the indictment. Each count is a mandatory 10 years to life and a million dollars, one, two, three, four million dollars on your indictment. So this was their idea of creating a deterrent because the set, the, the sentencing obviously wasn't working. Right. You know, so we were the ones that, you know, I'm sorry to say, fucked everything up for everybody else in the country <laughs> because they had to change these to mandatories in order to stop the flow of marijuana coming into South Florida or stem the flow of the majority of it, as if you will. So we didn't know this. So we're still operating under the guys that, you know, hey, you're just going to get a little one of these and, you know, you'll be back kind of thing. Well, that wasn't the case. The case was and when they got this guy out of Columbia and, you know, here they come and they jump my job. You know, the investigation starts after that. Now they're picking on kids that were, you know, 20 years old and 21 years old. Now I'm 25, 26. I was that old running boats through the islands, you know, when I was a kid. So that was nothing unusual. Well, you take a kid that's that old 
and now and, and you pull him aside and say, look, dude, this is no more slap on the wrist. This is this is serious shit. You have a minimum of 40 years. That's the, and, and because it's mandatory, the judges have lost their discretion when it comes to sentencing. Mm-hmm. It's now all done by slide rule kind of shit. It's all out of their hands. There's nothing they can do about it unless you offer them substantial cooperation. Now, by offering substantial cooperation and giving up, you know, your friends and telling how it was and how it was done and what you were involved in would then allow the judge to sentence you below the mandatory minimums because now this now you know it's a uh, it's a uh, it's a title 18 a section rule 35 it's what it's called offering testimony in order to get your sentence reduced below the mandatory minimums so what the united states government did after the you know after having research in this and becoming friends with some of the agents who arrested me back in that day um kind of let me know how that scenario took place and that where um they were uh, kids were getting taken and, and arrested. I was one of the first 38 to go when when the operation of Peacemaker was ours. That was in 87, Operation Peacemaker, Operation in, in 88. Um, the first 38, the uh, the headline of the Naples Daily News read, you know, in big letters uh, across the top of the page, area part of U.S. pot dragnet. And then the subtitled um, article in the middle said, agents say 38 helped import over 150 tons. Mm. And they put five names in there. Mine was the second name on the list. Plus two pictures of, you know, one of my guys, you know, two of my crewmen being escorted out of the Everglades City Jail to the Fort Myers Federal Building. And um, what wound up happening was that as the arrests were being affected and that in time goes on what they finally discovered was that that 150 tons plus or just shy of 400,000 pounds was only about a week's work for us kids that's when their mind went because they had no clue. and 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 as many kids you know because now there's there's no more adults i mean very few if you will rather yeah. involved in you know what was going on now because we took we took everything to the next level as kids. We had some cool toys. Man. It was just I mean, <laughs> awesome. But um, uh, what they did, uh, the United States government, that is by design rather than by accident in the wording of their, you know, their, their plea deals that they're making for these kids, you know, I mean, the only way to get out from under a mandatory sentence is, like I said, was to cooperate. Right. Well, they gave them the opportunity to cooperate, but in doing so, they also gave them immunity from prosecution from what everything that they had done. So they can spill their guts and not worry about, you know, you know, any, any reciprocity because of it. But they have to hold one count, one smaller count in reserve because they got to do something. Right. You know, they got to give you a smack on the wrist yeah. to give you, you know, a couple of months or they can send you home if they choose to on probation or whatever like that. But you have to offer this cooperation. So by doing so, what they did was. They opened the door because there were so many of us, dude. I mean, there was uh, ultimately over 300 kids, guys and gals all over South Florida and and Miami and as far as Kentucky um, were getting popped because of the mandatory minimums and kids being scared. You tell a kid that's 19, 20, 21 years old that they're going to prison for 40 years unless they cooperate, dude, they're going to give you their grandma's name. They're yeah. going to give you the grandpa's name, <laughs> you know, and shit like Anybody that. Anybody they can think of. So, yeah, no <laughs> shit. So what wound up happening is because of the immunity clause that was built into these plea agreements meant that, you know, guys would come out of there saying, okay, no, 
they're talking about you, Jimmy and Teddy and Willie. And I think the best thing for you to do is, if, you know, because they're coming for you, man. No doubt about it. When they take you and they are going to offer you this plea agreement, take it. Because along with it comes immunity from prosecution, from, you know, everything that you tell them. So you can tell on Tommy and, and Willie and Johnny. They've already got this deal with immunity and you can't hurt them. So everybody's telling back and forth on one another. Nobody's getting hurt. And they're getting is, out from under these multiple life sentences. <laughs> that is fucking awesome. <laughs> and 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 I had the opportunity to help to, to to try to reconcile in my mind about how this took place. It was years, you know. Here I am, thirty five years later. I'm working out at the at the L A Fitness, you know. And I hear this guy talking to my buddy next to me, and he says something like U.S. Customs and you know Marco Island Naples and in the eighties. And I really wasn't trying to pay attention. I was one, until he said that shit, and I went, hey. You know, I, I've got a history with U.S. Customs <laughs> in the 80s, you know, and shit like that. And he goes, you know, I got my picture on one of those newspapers. I don't remember which one it was, you know, like that. And, and uh, you know, so that was kind of the end of the conversation. I never gave it a second thought until I'm driving home. And I'm thinking, dude, there's no fucking way. I get home and I pull out my old yellow newspaper and open up. And there that fucker is. That's, uh, <laughs> supervisor for United States Customs. I just got done working out with the fucking guy. You know? <laughs> he was part of my, you know, the, the, the group that was trying to put us all away for life. And, Jeez. you know, uh, long story short, we wind up being the dearest of friends, you know, over that, because it, it turned out that, you know, they, even he understood. Now this is a guy who had done, I think three tours in Nam came out of a full bird Colonel. Um, just a, badass fucking dude did probably you know and he was special forces he was you know oh, wow. he was an army ranger probably kill you with his fucking pinky finger yeah. this time, you know <laughs> and he got out of that and and then went to the academy you know in customs and and uh, border protection and wound up riding a horse on the arizona border for a couple of years till they put him to, into drug interdiction in the uh in the eastern caribbean where he first gets a taste of us and then they bring him and make him supervising uh, agent for customs on our coast. Right. You know, like that. So that's how I wound up meeting this, you know, meeting this guy. And um, what he imparted to me was this, this scenario whereby the government said, look, you know, let's offer these people, you know, a way out, but let's not tell them this is their way out. We figured it out. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's as simple, you know, I got immunity, tell them my name, but you know, it didn't work that way for me, but on with the rest of the people, and it didn't matter to the United States government that, you know, they were hearing a lot of the same names being repeated and said over well, and yeah, over. Yeah, probably helped. Yeah. All that told them was that they're getting all the right people. Right. Yeah. When it came to a guy like me who's running the show, they want to know who the people in Miami are and where in the hell am I flying all over <laughs> the fucking Caribbean rim, you know, to see. You know, well, that fucking wasn't going to happen. Yeah. Because, you know, no matter how nonviolent we, we operated and how much, how it was family oriented throughout the Caribbean, I was dealing with, you know, families that have been in this industry since it was an industry. Yeah. You know, the guy I was dealing with in Colombia, um, the older generations dealt with his father before him. You know, it was just that kind of thing. But, you turn tail on on one of these fucking guys and they'll turn around and turn out to, you know, and, and turn into uh, guys that do very good at, at 
you know, getting rid of your ass and your family <laughs> and everybody, you know, and the dog yeah. and the cat, you know, <laughs> so you, you just don't do that. You know, even yeah. though it was nonviolent, you throw the guy under the bus like this. That's a different story. Yeah. That's a different story. So my deal wasn't like everybody else's deal. It couldn't happen that way. You know, my deal, my saving grace came by way of two treasury agents. One day hauled me out of Fort Myers County jail where I've been locked up for 10 months, you know, and, you know, sh- you know, handcuffed me, put a belly chain on, shackles on my ankles and a chain from the belly chain to my ankles, doing the convict shuffle outside on the street corner around the building to the yeah. federal building next door. We, Good morning. Good morning. I'm waving to people like this. You know, <laughs> They take me in there and they start questioning me about, you know, how were you able to do this for all these years and we couldn't catch you? And I said, well, fuck, game over, dude. I can tell you that. I can tell you how stupid you are, you know, but no names. Right. You know, I mean, you can figure out a name along the way, you know, prior to you. So I proceeded after, you know, a couple of months of taking me out every other day, get, get buying me a sandwich for lunch and like this and, you know, telling them, you know, these scenarios about how all these, you know, and I said, one of the first, first several questions I asked these two treasury agents were, you know, it was a man and a woman. They come into the room and they slap their identical gold badges against this fucking window. And I'm going, oh, shit. And the prosecutor, United States prosecutor, Susan Daltuva, heard me say that. She was in the next room. She comes busting through the door and she goes, Timmy, Timmy, Timmy. She says, this is not what you think it is. And I said, well, Susan, why don't you tell me what this is? Because it's this cooperation, just, you know, unlock that door and take me back to my, <laughs> you know, to my cell because that ain't happening. She said, no, no, no. What we'd like to know. And then she said, how were you able to do this for all this time? And then I said, okay, cool. I can tell you. First couple of questions I asked these two agents was, first of all, do you know the geography of Everglades City? Well, yeah. I said, okay. Well, how many roads are there in and out of Everglades City? Well, there's one. Yeah, there's one fucking road. <laughs> How many roads are there that are directly from Everglades City to Miami? There's one. US 41. That's right. One fucking road. And I said, well, we didn't take those millions of pounds of shit, you know, over there by the backs of pelicans and fucking porpoises, man. It went down that one goddamn road right out of town. And half the time we're waving at you as we're doing it. You know, that's just how it was. And, you know, so then I go on, you know, week after week and I am telling them about this and the different scenarios and, you know, working with Noriega and the house full of money and the amounts of money and the sheer volume of what it was we were doing. And, you know, after, you know, six, seven weeks of, you know, imparting this, this knowledge that they had no clue about one day they take me out <clears throat> we're going down the same hallway i'm usually jogging down they pass the door that we usually go into and they put me in this other little room they open it up and there's one guy in the room sitting next to a little table with a chair next to it with a polygraph machine <laughs> <laughs> i go in and i sit down and he hooked me up and all this kind of shit shut the door and this is me and this guy in there he starts doing his thing and asking me all these questions about this and that and the stuff I was telling the agents, you know, and all this kind of shit. And Tess gets over with, they unhook me and they stand up and they go to walk me out. And I, you know, I kind of, you know, look over my shoulder at the guy standing back in the room there like this. And the guy says, he, you know, passed with flying colors and they got this stupid look on their face and I'm just <laughs> grinning from here to here. <laughs> they weren't believing what I was telling them because, you know, who does this? Yeah. I mean, who unloads millions of pounds of shit? Nobody, we don't even know about it. You know, I'm so, well, you stupid fuckers. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, it was just, you know, embarrassing for them. It had to be. That's why the U.S. United States government will never tell you this story. You'll never hear about it from them. This is one of the reasons why I had to write the book. Yeah. You know, and I got I got the blessings from the older generations because, you know, telling it first person is, is somebody that has been there throughout the whole ride. And somebody that has worked on every position amongst the positions that there were there to work, I could tell it more accurately and more truthfully. And what we weren't willing to do was wait, you know, 10, 20 years, 30 years from now when every one of us is fucking dead. Yeah. And some half-assed journalist or some historian gets all these articles and patch quilts together a story that they think took place. Yeah. We weren't going to allow that to happen. So I was, you know, when I told them I was writing this book, they said, well, this is how it, this, you know, tell it, tell it just like it is. And yeah. that's how I got the story about the second generation, Craig and his brothers mm -hmm. and them standing in front of the magistrate, you know, and this is one of the, uh, one of the uh, uh, reasons why uh, the sentencing guidelines that they were handing out at the, in those days weren't having the effect that they wanted them to have because here we got five brothers standing in front of a federal magistrate in Miami and he's reading off their their list of seizures and they've got you know a, a Netherlands Antilles holding company worth millions and properties all over the Caribbean here in the states they've got houses hotels timeshares um, motels buses, cars, airplanes, you know, one of the guys, Daryl and his brother, Craig, the youngest brother, they each had airplanes. They didn't have licenses to fly the buses. <laughs> they, they just had money to buy them and paid a guy to show them how to fly. The you know? <laughs> so they had some shit to do. So all these seizures and not only that, they seized 580,000 pounds of Colombian weed mm. from these guys. Now, who the fuck's got a half a million plus pounds of shit laying around? Well, <laughs> they do. <laughs> so the judge is reading this and then he comes to their sentencing as after having read this shit. And, and he says, you know, gentlemen, he's flipping through the pages and they're all standing up there in front of him, you know, five brothers. Now, Craig had the youngest brother had been arrested for this type of thing once before. And the judge reminded him of it. He says, you know, you know, Mr. Dan, this is your second time, you know, mm -hmm. being having done this. But his other four brothers, this was their first time. And then he flipped through pages again, you know, and he literally he looks at these guys and he's straight in the eye. And he says, gentlemen, he says, I have never in my career uh, as a magistrate ever come across people quite like you. He says, <laughs> there are no guidelines for people like such as yourselves. <laughs> he says, I have no, no idea where to begin and uh so he he you know looks at his shit again and he he looks up now i'm hearing this from craig and i'm reading you know bits and pieces of the transcripts and this magistrate looks at the other four brothers and gives them 36 fucking months wow 36 months because that's all the guidelines called for yeah at that time and he looks at craig and he says okay now remember this is your second time around and craig's thinking like only 36 months, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's looking pretty good, you know? Yeah. So the judge, the judge says, he says, once again, Mr. Daniels, he goes, I have never in my life ever <laughs> heard of or come across anybody quite like you. He says, now does five years sound like a long time. <laughs> he's asking Craig and Craig goes, Oh yes, sir. That sounds like a hell of a long time. And the guy goes, 
five years. <laughs> <laughs> and then in those days, he's out in less than three. Yeah. You know? So it, considering that all this millions of shit and property and seizures and, and weed that they got from these guys, and they got 36 months, two and a half years. And then a year later, here they come with, you know, several years later, here they come with Operation Peacemaker. And now they're handing out life sentences for having done the same thing. Oh, yeah. So the government, in their infinite wisdom, you know, decides that, like I said, rather than by accident, they incorporated this by design in these plea agreements because they discovered after the first 38 of us went that there was nobody left but kids to be arrested because they'd taken everybody else over the last two operations. And what they weren't willing to do was because a year earlier, they're giving out sentences that are providing for, you know, two, three, four years at the most. And now they're giving life sentences to kids who have done the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, it didn't, it didn't work out for them even in their own minds to send children, to send kids away for life for what their parents have gotten, you know, 36 months months for. A year prior. So that's kind of how that all turned out. And it worked out great for, you know, all the other guys and, you know, God bless them. They, you know, you know, if they had hang on to, you know, to their, you know, to their um, belief and and not take an agreement, dude, you're looking at, you know, I would still be in prison right now yeah. if that were the case. But when it came to a guy like me, like I said, they wanted to know, you know, who I was dealing with and this and that. Well, I couldn't do that. The only thing I could do was tell them how it was done. And as it turned out, that was enough of them, you know, for them to give me, um, um, they kept my sentence, you know, after this, you know, these sessions with them, the the judge agreed to cap my sentencing at 20 years. He wouldn't give me any more than 20, but they couldn't give me less than 10 because they didn't consider what I was giving them substantial enough because they wanted names, right? you know, that wasn't fucking going to happen, like I said. Yeah. So, you know, I took my lumps. I went in with 10 mandatory and doing my time, you know, and in, and in prison, anybody that's ever gone to prison, state or federal or otherwise, knows that you, you work. Oh, yeah. You know, you get a job that puts you to work. Well, my job, first of all, going into Tallahassee, uh, federal correctional was uh, in construction. And I'm out on the I'm out on the rec yard one day after my week or two of being in there. And you know, I said, I'm not Bill. I don't want to build this goddamn place, man. <laughs> you know, it's bad enough I'm in here. Now, let alone I got to help build the fucker. <laughs> so uh, I meet a guy Rolando out in the weight yard, and he was a clerk. He was a law clerk in the legal library, um, in the education building, and in Tallahassee. Within the Federal Bureau of Prisons, Tallahassee is the hub of the Bureau of Prisons. If you are looking to get an education, they will, you know, you'll request a transfer. They transfer you here and they have a campus on in the prison where they bring in civilian teachers and professors and whatnot to give you the education that you request and require. And along with that, every federal institution, and I'm sure state institutions are the same way, they need to provide inmates with access to, to law material so they can research and work on their own cases. That's that's by, that's by law that has to be done. Right. So I took a job in the legal library from, and I went, I had to go down with Rolando and meet the head convict that was running the, the library. His name was Dennis Lehman. He was a bank robber. And he likes me right from the start. Minute, immediately calls, starts calling me Timmy. You know, everybody calls me Timmy. 
Um, so I wind up getting a job, you know, and now I'm a legal clerk and this and that. And, and um, Dennis's story was, was rather unique in, in and of itself. He was in, uh, doing 52 years for bank robbery. He was in his 32nd year when I met him in prison. Wow. And he was uh, is in the Guinness Book of World Records for having been given the most amount of time for that particular crime. And he didn't even rob the bank. He was flying. He was waiting in an airplane to fly the two guys that actually robbed the bank out of there. One of the two guys got six years. The other guy got 12 years. Dennis got 52. The reason he got 52 years was because for a number of years prior to the bank robbery, he was flying cocaine from Mexico to Nevada and they couldn't catch him. They so when they finally had something to nail his ass with, they fucking pinned him to the board, man. And that's where he, that's where he wound up in prison, Dang. you know, for, for the majority of his life. But, um, uh, just, to, you know, just one of the coolest guys you'd ever want to meet, you know, but it's, you know, it's a shame that there are people like that because, you know, um, in an environment such as that, there are absolutely people that deserve to be there, man. I mean, yeah. no doubt about it. And then as you spend some time and you get to know some of the, you know, some of the convicts and some of the inmates that are in there with you, you know, there are just as many that don't deserve don't, to be yeah. there. No, the I agree with that. Hell, I, I, I met a guy that was, you know, he was doing uh, 11 months for um, assaulting a federal employee. And how that happened quite simply was he's walking his dog down the sidewalk in his neighborhood on a leash. And the mailman's coming the other direction. And the little dog's, whoop, 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 whoop. mailman pulls out his shit and squirts the dog, maces the dog. Well, the guy's pissed, obviously, and he bit slaps the fucking mailman. <laughs> that was the assault on the federal employee that he got 11 months for. Wow, that's crazy. Just ridiculous shit. Another guy was in there for uh, nine months for destruction of federal property. Check this out. He's in a 7-Eleven buying stamps. You put the money in the thing and you and your stamp drops out. Yeah. Well, he puts his money in it. No stamps. So he hits the thing like this. He hits it like this. He hits it like this. And he finally backs up. He kicks it with his foot. And the girl behind the counter, she's calling the fucking cops because he's beating the shit out of the fucking stamp machine. Cops show up and arrest him for destruction of federal property. Jeez. He got nine months in federal prison for fucking hitting a goddamn stamp machine. Are you oh, shitting me? It's situations <laughs> like that where people go through shit like that. They'll never look at cops the same way again. Like it's no, just, because it fucking it's just, ruins it. No, it's ridiculous. You, you know, some of it gets to a point where it's just absolutely stupid. Yeah. And then, you know, you got guys like us who were hauling, you know, literally millions of pounds of shit into this country. And, Ultimately being given the opportunity by, you know, our government showing its, you know, so-called benevolence by allowing us to take these agreements and allowing us to deduct these mandatory life sentences because, you know, we were kids. Right. And they weren't willing to do that when you still got people up, you know, that are doing, you know, life for three times around, yeah. you know, three times around. Your third time was caught with a fucking half a joint yeah. You're doing life in prison when a guy like me who, you know gets indicted for almost 400,000 pounds. And I do, you know, ultimately out of that 10, I wound up getting a, uh, since I was working in the legal department, you know, in prison, 
I wound up getting a, uh, a literary arts degree and I got an associate's degree in paralegal studies while I was there because my job was to help inmates research and, you know, find their way through the law books. So I figured what a, what, you know, what a great opportunity. And I did a correspondence course through the University of Honolulu and got this degree so I could, you know, be more confident in being able to help and, and research and, and shepherdize is what it's calling you, shepherdize cases to find right. You know, cases similar to yours that have, you know, points, you know, points of interest that are similar to yours that were adjudicated differently than you. Right. So yeah. you cite all these different cases mm-hmm. and the clerk has to read these cases. And if it, it all adds up to where, you know, because um, our jurisprudence uh, system is done um, uh, on what they call, um, um, or look, it'll come to me. But um, it, it, all, it all has to do with fairness in, in sentencing. It all has to be consistent. Right. I can't be arrested and put in prison for something that somebody else got, you know, adjudicated not guilty for. Right. Or got less time for. So you find these cases with similar aspects and you put them together to support your argument mm-hmm. is how it works. So I put together my own argument for reduction of sentence out of that mandatory 10 years to life because they were getting getting my friends and everybody you know out of prison and sending them home for what they called cooperation well you know i'm sitting in the law library one day and i'm just flipping through the pages of a dictionary called black's legal dictionary and and black's legal dictionary is the dictionary that is used by prosecuting and and defense attorneys that defines all legalese oh it's um you know that that takes them and and not only gives you definitions of specific types of law, but um, explains to you the Latin versions of what it is, you know, that they call, you know, whatever. And I get to cooperation, their definition in Black's Legal Dictionary of Cooperation. And basically what I'm reading is that if somebody asks you for something and you give that to them, by that definition, you have cooperated with them. Well, I'm sitting there thinking, well, fuck, you know, they wanted $4 million in fines. Here you go. They wanted to know how all this shit was done. And they spent months drilling me and grilling me and shit to find that out. Well, I did that. So essentially, according to this definition, I cooperated with these bastards. So I hinged and wrote my brief based on that definition of cooperation in the dictionary that they use to define all their language. And I wound up getting myself cut from 10 to four. Wow. And when that happened, I was already three and a half years in. So, so you're I'm about standing out the fucking with, door. I, I, I didn't want to writ out and go to my own you know, hearing because I would have lost my bunk. It took me two years to get to the, you know, people have to die or they got to get their sentences over before you can move your place in, in the bunk, you know, yeah. in, the, in the, in the, in the dorm. Now Tallahassee is a, is an old Shawshank Redemption style building, looking building. And the, it's an older prison. And the sections that I was in, the, the, the four original units, I was in E unit, no air conditioning, just fans. I mean, it was a hell fucking hell hole. And um, so I let my brother go. I finally took me, you know, from getting in the center of the room, I got my bunk now against the wall next to a window, you know, a little bit more privacy, that kind of thing where I could sit in the top bunk and I could see everybody in the room because they weren't individual cells that we were locked into at this time. There's 175 convicts per unit. Yeah. 
setting cubicles. So if you got problem with somebody, you need to get your shit done or, <laughs> you know, get it figured out or sleep with one fucking eye open because it's coming. <laughs> you know, this is just how it was. It's a gladiator school. And so um, what winds up, what winds up taking place is, um, you know, here I am, you know, three and a half years into this thing. I didn't want to go. I sent my brother to the hearing and, you know, I, I, you know, sat in line for three hours waiting to get my spot on the phone, called him up. And, you know, I said, well, how'd it go, man? I said, you know, tell me something. And the first thing out of his mouth, he says, you know, were you fucking that prosecutor or something, man? Cause you know, she talked pretty good about you <laughs> You talking about, he said, yeah, all the stuff you were telling them and this and that, they really appreciated it and stuff like that. You know, and they caught the judge's attention. And then and I said, all right, well, besides all of that shit, fuck that shit. What I wind up with. <laughs> and he said four years. And I said, what? He said four fucking years. And here I am three and a half in, I got six months now left to do it. I about, I about scream and I about <laughs> fell over and pulled the phone off the wall. Now <laughs> I was yelling and whooping and Yahoo. I got, I'm six months short now. It's, you know, wow. it was awesome. That's crazy, man. I mean, you got so many more stories where we're already running over a little bit, but it's, it's hard to stop. You got so many good stories in prison folks. I can't stress to you how much enough I'm going to put a link, uh, to the book, you know, on the show notes here for the YouTube channel. You guys have got to go get this book. It do it dives into a lot more stuff in detail, you know, that Tim did. And then, you know, the experiences you had in prison, the one where you, you wouldn't tell on the guy that whacked you over the head, I thought was, was a really good one too. Like I said, you yeah, wanna... that was, uh, yeah, that, that kind of, you know, I would, I, I was expecting that. Yeah. You know? yeah. That was just out, out of the blue here that come, man, you know, but, um, it, it worked out in the end, Yeah, you know, and, uh, one of the stories that, that, I, that's, that I think it's, is, um, important for people to hear is how we got called that's, that moniker saltwater cowboys. Yeah. You know, it was, was a you know that one i think if you know if you got a couple minutes i'll tell you otherwise we can oh we no can no you again. yeah you're doing me the favor here so if you want to tell it you go right ahead <laughs> <laughs> well i'll leave you with this story you know about how the book got its name and how i got called you know saltwater cowboy um i've been working for you know uh, you know almost a year you know by now and, you know, it's the, the typical scenario on how it works is us as the the loaded the load vessel that's going out to meet the mothership. We typically sit off of the horizon until, you know, three, four hours before sundown. And the horizon on the water is is, is how far you can see with your naked eye before things go out of sight. Um, so we would sit just off the horizon and on the water, that's typically anywhere between eight and and 10 miles, depending on how big the vessel is and how high it stands above the water. We would sit off the horizon and wait for three, two or three hours before sundown. Every boat that we're out there to meet, we're, we're given prior a call sign. Call the boat, call the boat. They recognize the call sign and say, come on. So they know that the boat coming to them is the one that should be, you know, right. they're expecting us. So we're coming up to this boat and I've been doing this for, you know, like I said, almost a year now. And, and I thought I'd seen, you know, about every way there is to haul a load of pot, you know, by this time, but I wound up being severely wrong about this <laughs> one because the captain, he, you know, he hands me a pair of binoculars and he goes like this. He says, check this out, man. He says, you're not going to believe what you're about to see. 
So I'm looking through the binoculars like this and we're getting closer to the boat and, and, and it's a cattle, it's a cattle transport. The guy they hired to move this load of, of weed was, uh, his business was buying cattle in South America and selling it in New Orleans and selling them, in, you know, here in the States. So he's always making this trip. So consequently, somebody approaches him and says, hey, man, you want to make some extra cash? Oh, yeah. Fuck yeah. So the stuff <laughs> is put down below deck, you know, below the below the main weather deck. And the main, main weather deck is where all these cattle are. And he's got, you know, big fenced-in corral-looking thing around the boat. Well, there's probably 150 head of cattle on this goddamn boat, as near as I can tell. And I'm looking, and the closer we get, and all of a sudden the fan gates open up on the back of the boat, and these guys start prodding, cattle prodding these fuckers off the back of the boat. And of these cows are like, I mean, it's like a bovine waterfall. They're just nowhere to go but into the water, and they're splashing. I mean, all kind of shit. I mean, it was just a, a vision that I can't ever get out of my mind. And as we pull up to the boat, you know, it took two boats to, to get the load. So there's two of our boats pull up there and, you know, there's horns and there's hooves, there's clunking on the hull and we're hearing the, uh, and the cows are rolling their eyes and shit. And they're drowning in the water right next to us. And we're thinking, what in the fuck? So we pull up and, you know, they start throwing the stuff down. They had it all ready. They start throwing the stuff down to us. And, and, um, you know, the captain of my boat, he yells up there and he goes, what in the fuck's going on? <laughs> And the captain of that boat, the mother boat, he's leaning against the rip, peeling an orange. And he goes, you know what? We can't get these goddamn shit off the boat with all these cows in the way. <laughs> so they run their asses off the fucking boat. Holy we get the load shit. and shit. And we're thinking, holy fucking shit, man. So we get back into town and, you know, back into the offload. And we're offloading. And the next day, the shit's getting sent to Miami. And we're telling you guys about these assholes with the cows on the boat, right? And, um. We thought that was the end of it, you know, so, you know, two, three weeks goes by and you know, I don't know how many jobs in the meantime we do, you know, four or five. And, you know, here comes this goddamn boat again, the same one. <laughs> only this time there's, you know, there's not only cows, there's there's goats, there's pigs, there's chickens. And they had monkeys, these little spider monkeys that come out of the jungle, you know, and you know, they get on the boat at night. Primarily, if the boat's close enough to when they can load, which a lot of times they can get in close enough like that, the monkeys get on there and they eat the seeds. Yeah. And they they wind up falling asleep between the bales, <laughs> you know, as they're stacked. They wake up, you know, they come out of their stupor and they're offshore. They're stuck on this goddamn boat. There had to have been, you know, two dozen of these goddamn monkeys on this <laughs> boat. And here we come again. I'm watching all of a sudden. Oh, Gates open up again and off the fucking boat they go, you know, and it was like, the, it was like these damn monkeys knew exactly what was happening, dude. They hit, they hit the light, the, the mats, the light mast, you know, the towers, the antennas and everything, because they think they knew what was happening there. They weren't getting off this fucking boat. <laughs> it was the funniest thing I saw until with the cow thing again, you know. So we pull up there and the same shit, the cows are everywhere. And, and finally, you know, during the offloading, our captain, you now he yells up to the other, at the, at the captain of the other boat. He says, look, man, he says, we're not doing this shit anymore. He says, don't come back here again. He says, this is not right. You know, for, for one thing, you know, the poor fucking cows, yeah. one thing. Second of all, 
we can't have them continue to wash up on the beaches in Fort Myers and Marco Island because that's where they're winding up. These fucking cows are up on the beach. You know, it's, it's one thing to be walking down the beach and, you know, you trip over a conch shell or a dead fish or something like that. But it's very much another thing to be walking down the beach and stumble over a fucking dead cow. You know? <laughs> Somebody's going to be raising an eyebrow or two. So we said, you know, don't ever come back. You know, don't do this again. So. We bring this shit back in and we tell the crew again, hey, these fuckers came back, man, you know, with these cows. And, and that's how the whole you bunch of cowboys, you know, you, saltwater cowboys is what you guys are. That's how it started. So from wow. that point on, and it's very few people, you know, a close knit group of people understand that that's how that moniker came about. Saltwater cowboys. <laughs> and hence the name of the book so yeah well, there you it, go. it was a fantastic book i'll probably wind up getting a hard version myself i might send it to you and get your autograph on there i listened to the audible yeah, version and it was a couple of times where i have you know my little earpiece in there and i just start cracking up and people would look at me like what the hell are you laughing at and i just have to tell them parts of the story <laughs> and and get them There's interested so much yeah, you know, because there was, there was, there was, I mean, so much history to tell, so much craziness to tell, to talk about. And when I was contracted with my, my literary agency was um, 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 Boundary Literary and Media in Manhattan. And I wound up uh, signing with St. Martin's Press after I turned down Random House and Doubleday. Um, and the reason I did that was, um, because of the, uh, it wasn't the most lucrative deal through them. Um, but I knew by that time that I, if I didn't get it on the front end, I would get it as royalty on the back end. Either way, I'm going to get the money. Right. So, um, I chose St. Martin's press not because they are, um, described by Wikipedia as being the world's largest publishers of the English language. And they publish under seven other imprints around the world. Right. So I thought if I'm going to choose these people, they can take this thing and just run with it, you know, and mm -hmm. go with it. So I chose St. Martin's press and little did I know that the author um, of blow Bruce Porter, Bruce who Porter. wrote George Young's story was also a St. Martin's press author. Mm -hmm. And during the time I was, copy editing and working on, on, on my book, my book became the in-house favorite at St. Martin's press and word got around and Bruce decided he needed an advanced copy of this book. Cause he wanted to check it out. Well, it blew his freaking brain out of his head. <laughs> he said, well, I've got to offer this guy a review for the back of his book. So uh, there's only two back there on the back of the book. One is the Kirkus review and Kirkus is, uh, is, um, you know, they're big time, you know, reviewers of books, particularly uh, fond of bashing authors, uh, particularly new authors. Mm -hmm. But they wound up for, you know, giving me an, an awesome review. It was, you know, it was, it was you know, uh, surprised me. You know, I was flattered that they had done that. Plus the, the review that uh, Bruce Porter offered was, uh, was very cool. So that's on the back of the book. You should read that one. Yeah, that's. Definitely people, you got to go out here and track down this book. Um, if you, you know, if you're not into the sitting and, and flipping the pages, get the audible. It's on the audible. Um, you don't, there's a Kindle version. Yeah. Kindle version as well. As well. And we're, like I said, we're going to attach it to the MP, show notes. There's an MP3 CD as well. Really? Yep. Wow. So any, any ways you guys can listen to them, folks is out there listening slash read, whatever you want to do. There's, there's so many more stories that we couldn't possibly 
fit into this episode. Great Dude, story. You got that you want six to hear. hours. We can get through maybe <laughs> half of it. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I was contracted for an eighty thousand word document through St. Martin's Press when I when I went to go ahead and write this book. In the process of writing it, I wrote over two hundred thousand words and condensed it into an eighty six thousand word volume that you read now. Wow. Because and then a lot of it was left out, like the, you know, my working for Noriega. That's a story that's, you know, will have me back, dude. And we'll, yeah, we'll oh, talk for sure. about that. Yeah, there'll Basically. be a part two. <laughs> well, but uh, yeah, that's not what a cowboy, man. And it is the history of marijuana in this country, how it began with a guy named Lauren Tots Brown in the 60s and how it ended with my crew in, in the in the mid 80s. Um and uh, it's not a boring statistical romp through the war on drugs, dude. No. It's just me, a regular guy sitting on the couch next to you, telling you this awesome fucking story that's, you know, unbelievable at best. Yeah. You know, but uh, the absolute truth. And, and, and I say that with, with complete confidence because uh, when I was being interviewed by Susan Robbins, who is the publisher herself of St. Martin's Press, I was on with the executive editor, the executive uh, in charge of sales, uh, Susan Robbins, the publisher, and, and uh, two other executives. I forget what the hell their positions were. But um, the only thing that, this, the, that the editor herself asked me about after hearing all this, cra- because of the craziness and the, and the, you know, the sheer amounts of money and, and, and material involved in the story, she asked me about validity, you know, validating the story. And I said, okay, well, who would you like me to introduce to you? Um, uh, CIA, Secret Service, FBI, DEA, Florida Department of Law Enforcement. Um, you know, who, who do you want to talk to? And she said, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> you know, per- I don't care. That's great. Perfect. So um, I had uh, Mark Resnick being their senior editor. He's the one that championed my story at the beginning with all the executives of St. Martin's Press. This is why it got such a big, you know, a, a, you know, a, a big following, you know, within the, the publishing house itself. But Mark wanted so, so desperately to work with me, but he was finishing at that time a book called American Sniper. Mm-hmm. Once that book was finished, the uh, editor that had taken me on in the meantime, we got, we got halfway through the book, um, Johan um, Soha. And um, something, else, something else unprecedented within, within this realm of writing and, and publishing took place where we only, worked, we only did one edit in the first half of the book. Wow. That was all that was required because it was nothing. I mean, the book was written in such a way that there was no editing to be done. Yeah, to hard it. to take anything away. You know, and and then I wound up lucking out because when he took a job as senior editor for Doubleday, Mark Resnick stepped up and helped me, you know, edit through the second half of the book. You know, with Mark, I only did two edits with him. I told him, you know, I, I sent him everything that I had written for the second half of the book so he would understand the direction I was going, mm-hmm. you know, with the story. And my literary agent at that time said, dude, why did you do that? Why did you give him the whole thing? I said, well, you know, he's got to get an idea about where it goes. And I said, don't yeah. worry about it. You know, he gives me one or two, you know, things to edit. I'll understand what he wants and I'll give him exactly. And that's what happened. He said, I would like to see a little more of the craziness with regards to the smuggling and a little less of the prison time. So I just tweaked that a little bit. And the entire book only took three edits and wow. it went to, it went to copy edit, you know? at that point. Yeah, that's 
that's unprecedented because that don't usually happen. It's usually edited quite a bit in most cases. Yeah, back and forth, back and forth. But because it was a tale that I can only, it's only one person that can tell it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's, here, you can't pay. You can't put a group of guys in a room and try to figure out ways to change the story because they don't know the well, story. It's you. And it's history. You can't yeah. fuck with that. For you sure. know, and that being said, you know, the one of the several of the local universities here in South Southwest Florida, Florida Gulf Coast University, for for one, for, uh, for instance, they teach uh, five different courses about cannabis because Florida has become medically legal. And, right. you know, they're trying to help people who are not you know regular students, but civilians from off campus can come in and take these courses just to help understand it a little bit better. The medical benefits and, and of course, the history. That's where I come in. My book was uh, was um, a required historical text for these classes because of the history that it imparts in the, in the way it's told. Wow. So I was really, really proud of that. So I lecture with the university and the kids, you know, a couple times a month or once a month or whatever like that when the new when the new um, semesters come up. So right. that's a lot of fun. Yeah, that's cool. Well, man, I tell you what, this has been one fantastic fucking story. And I got to ask because it's. You know, there's so much craziness in it. I'm sure the money flowed, the parties was there, the good times were had. Obviously, you did wind up taking the pinch. You had to go away for a few years. Luckily, only four. They wanted to give you a lot more. If you had, if I you, was doing 160 years mandatory to life and 16 million dollars in fines in the beginning. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Well, you made out like a fucking it. bandit. I couldn't even wrap my mind around it. It just didn't mean anything to me because that's just ludicrous, man. <laughs> If you knew how all this was going to play out, you know, starting over, would you do it again? Would you do everything you did again? If I knew it would turn out the way it turned out again? Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was just, you know, as a kid, you know, who grows up like that as a kid? Yeah. You know, who unloads freighters from every corner of the Caribbean, you know? People just, you know, people have a hard time wrapping their heads around, you know, when I get together with a buddy or, or you know, somebody that I that I knew and, and they've got a friend that they'll say, hey, you know what, hey, to me, tell my buddy one of these crazy ass stories, you know, <laughs> and, and shit like that. You know, I'm like, you know, the, the first thing that comes out of their mouth is, you know, once I say something like 20 tons, I've lost them yeah. because, you know. It's just uh, uh, to to them. It's an it's an unbelievable fact of life. But for me and the guys that I grew up with, and even a lot, you know, a lot of the guys I grew up with wondered, why are you writing a book? And who'd want to want to hear about that? You know. Well, me being who I am, I saw the big picture. Yeah. You know, I know people. You know, when you say shit like this and the the unbelievable amounts of shit that we were moving, people are going to want to know this. They're going to want to hear it but they're going to need the validation in order for it to make sense to them and, and, and to realize that, yeah, this is actually how it took place. And that's why I have, you know, most of these guys who were at the CIA and, and, and um, secret service come to run interdiction vessels for customs and their supervisors and FBI, all these people. That's why, you know, a lot of these guys are, are, you know, several of them are my dear friends now because it was just what they were doing and was what I was doing. And now they all say it was a waste of fucking time, you know, because they got yeah. absolutely nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> except for that last operation, I wound up, you know, and I'll make this quick and, and, and sweet. The uh, 
supervisor and the resident agent for Homeland Security in South Florida contacted me about five, six years ago, wanted to meet me, wanted to talk to me, wanted to meet a legend, he called me. I started laughing. I said, what? <laughs> he said, yeah, come and have a chat with me. Let's talk. You know, and so he, he during our conversation, imparted to me a simple fact that when they stopped my crew and all these Southwest Florida crews that, you know, during that Operation Peacemaker, that literally ended Caribbean marijuana coming into the United States. It ended. That was in the late 80s, early 90s. So you're the guy. You're enough, <laughs> and if you're old enough and anybody watching this is old enough to understand, you know, remember those days and that that distinctive paradigm shift in the marijuana industry was that Southwest Florida got cut off from from the importation. And now comes the Sinaloa show up now they've been around they knew about these guys they've been around forever but now all of a sudden the mexicans and the gulf cartel the the uh the juarez cartel and the ariano felix brothers who are running the tijuana cartel wound up taking advantage of us having abandoned or rather being taken out of the picture well mexico didn't want the colombian weed or the caribbean weed they want to sell their own mexican brickweed crap yeah so from that point on no more Caribbean marijuana was coming into the country. It was going to North Africa and into Europe now is where it goes. The, the, uh, the, the Mexican uh, cartels wanted the cocaine because they couldn't grow the coca plant. They didn't need the weed because they could grow that. They didn't need the heroin because they could grow that uh, poppy and make brown tar heroin. They just couldn't, ha- they couldn't grow the coca plant. So that was the paradigm shift and everything shifted into Mexico. And that's how all this crazy absurd death and destruction and and extortion of people bringing you know being made to be brought bales you know hump a bale through the desert kind of shit like that you know and uh, having that um bit of uh, the industry taking place and making the shift in the direction that it did you know pissed us all off in in a matter of speaking because now you've taken a, an industry that, away from a group of people that never fired one fucking shot. I mean, we never saw guns. I never saw guns as a kid. It was just, it was not allowed. It was just, it, it never happened because it was never necessary. Even if, you know, one of us fucked up as kids or whatever, and there was no corporal punishment. Nobody got their asses whipped. You never got <laughs> smacked in the back of the head and shit like that. It was, you don't work for three jobs. Yeah, you know that's your punishment. Well, you just got your ass spanked, dude, because you just lost a hundred grand. <laughs> yeah, that that was the punishment. That's how, you did. that's how it worked, and that's one of the likable things about the story, and that's one of the reasons why I wrote it. You know, and and was able to tell it the way I did, so people understand that now because of the the changes in the marijuana laws, whether it's recreationally legal or it's medically legal, people who are who now have the opportunity to try it for the first time legally. To yeah. make that decision, you know, on their own, I would like them to understand the true history and the true nature of how this material, this this cannabis, was brought to this country in the early days, right. not what they're seeing on the border of Mexico, because that's a distorted version and a version that I don't really like even thinking about. Right? You know, because they're showing, you know, if you show a, a medically graded, beautiful looking bud glistening in the sun with all its goodness. And you show another picture of some poor Mexican bastard who's been extorted, and his family's being held in lieu of him getting that bail across the uh, across the, you know, the border. Which one are you going to point to? Which one do you want to smoke? Yeah, you know, you're going to smoke this nice bud here. And that was why in the early eighty, early nineties, um, 
the uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Emerald Triangle in Northern California, the Trinity, Mendocino, and um, um, I know there's one other county, but anyways, um, that's when homegrown started becoming a thing, you know. But yeah. more importantly, I wanted people to you know to know this history and know this beginning and how it was done non-violently, because when when you're trying it for the first time. I would rather have them have an image of that cool Rasta dude standing out in his crop, you know, with his dreads and just, you know, rolling us, rolling this big beef clip and a banana leaf or some shit, or this you know, cool little Colombian guy and his family and his all cotton white shirt and his big white cotton white hat, just tending bud. You know, that's the feeling I want people to have when they try this for the first time, that sense of, you know, you know, ease and just coolness, you know, yeah. that type of thing. Not what they're seeing on the Mexican border. That just distorts and, you know, and it just gives me a bad feeling inside. Right. You know? so it's important that they read this because this is exactly how it took place. And, and there's no room for, for um, any kind of embellishment because, right. and I've been asked about that because of the ridiculous amounts that I'm talking about, you know, 28 days we worked one, one month to the tune of 1.6 million pounds was my rough guesstimate, you know, in 28 days. Now, um, and, and all done nonviolently and in such a way where, you know, we never hurt anybody, you know, yeah, really. So that's what I want people to understand. That's the story I want them to, to, to come into their first experience with. Yeah. And that's, those are unprecedented numbers you just threw around. And like you said, to do it nonviolently, it's just, Hollywood and, and the news media and stuff, they try to put a different spin on things and, and make you think you guys are out there cutthroat and killing each other and throwing each other out of the water. And it just, it wasn't the case. That's not to say that, 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 that those scenarios didn't take place. I mean, there were guys out there that were working on their own. Like I said, we're not the only ones that ever haul pot. Right. I never take anything. I never, you know, I, I never dismiss anybody or take, try to take anything away from anybody that's ever done that. But, you know, there were guys out there that were, you know, operating under those you know conditions and those terms because right. they have every bit of their money involved and tied up into that, what it is they're doing. Yeah. You know, and the way that we were working was that it wasn't my money. It wasn't our money. And it was so much money involved in it that, you know, I could lose a load. And, and like I said, I had 32 chances to get your shit in to still make money. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. So the pressure, so, it, it takes a lot of the pressure off. Like, I'm sure just, you're like, you know, you got, like you said, if you lose one, two, hell, even three in a row, you still way to the good. It's just like, you didn't know, matter. yeah, go didn't back matter. and get some more, <laughs> you know, we still got plenty of money. You know, we got, we made 9 million, we made 10 million and got our 300,000 back. You know, what do we care? We're right. still making money after 30 or 31 losses. Get that last one in. We're still making money. You know, that was just, that was just how it was. So this is what I want people to understand. This is why it's important that, you know, just pick the book up, man, and, and have a read. It's an easy read. It was written. Um, I chose to write the book in what's called the Chicago Manual of Style, which is a little more uh, uh, grammatically forgiving um, with regards to an English style of writing um, or uh, um, an American style of writing that allows me to, to tell the story more to my voice. Right. You know, more, more to my character with that regard. So, 
you know, pick it up and have a read and just, you know, enjoy the shit out of it, man. There's some, it takes you through every range of emotion. And I even still, when I read my story back to myself, there's times when I'm <laughs> laughing, I'm giggling and I'm crying. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm every bit of emotion that I wrote in there. And there's nothing more gratifying to an author than to have their book turn out exactly the way they intended it. And my intention was to grab you, pull you to the front of your seat in the first chapter and keep you there to the end of the book. Well, you damn sure succeeded with me and I'm sure you'll do so with anybody that takes our advice and goes and picks us up, whether you're reading it or listen to it, folks, it's a fantastic book. You do not want to miss it. Some of what we covered here, but so much more in the book that we couldn't possibly fit into an episode. So go out, get that's, that book. That's for sure. And Tim, we want to appreciate you coming by the show, man. I, you've been a fantastic interview. I'm sure we'll have you on again you know, later on down oh, the road, but we want to thank you. Found me all the way up there in South Carolina, man. Yep. And it's, you know, it's, it's really gratifying for, for me to know that there are guys out, out there like you that, that appreciate me and, and, and appreciate a story that, 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 that reads and that tells the way this one tells, you know, because it's, like I said, it's, it, you know, regardless of where you sit on the fence with this, with this issue in this industry, the story is for everybody. Right. Yeah. Oh know? yeah. Yeah. It, it doesn't pick out or single out the, the stoners and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't do anything like that. What it does is it imparts to you and helps you understand how this industry operated for over 40 years and was done by families. Yeah. You know, and once again, and I'll say it again and I'll keep saying it. No kudos to anybody that ever hauled a load of pot. But all I'm saying when I wrote this book is that, we were the only ones able to integrate it into a way of life spanning 40 years and three generations. That's impressive, man. That is impressive indeed. And thank you for having me, man. And I'll be, I'd be, I'd be honored to, to come back and, and, you know, talk with your people and talk with you again. Absolutely, anytime. man. That'd be fantastic. If you ever get down here in Charleston uh, around my way, give me a holler, man. We'll have to get up and grab a beer or something for sure. Yeah, man. Absolutely. I I would, uh, I would dig the shit out of that for sure. All right. Well, folks, there you have it. The incredible tale of Tim McBride. Be sure to pick up that book, Saltwater Cowboy, the rise and fall of a marijuana empire. I am Hollywood Wade. That was Tim McBride. And unfortunately we are out of time. Please tune in next week to an all new episode of crime and entertainment. Tim, we appreciate it, buddy. Thank you, my man. See everybody. Recording stopped. Man, that was good. That was awesome. Huh? Oh boy, oh boy, what an episode. What an interview. I think that one clocked in at right around two and a half, two hours, 45 minutes total. Um, what a story. I mean, I can't, I can't underplay it over. What I don't know the word. I don't even know the words here for crying out loud. I can't even <laughs> divulge. The words for what a fantastic story that was. What an unbelievable story. Yeager, what'd you think of it? It's fantastic storytelling. I got to say Hollywood. 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 Wade. You start this over. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. You're, you're, I didn't call you Craig or anything. You're Wade in Hollywood. <laughs> Just pick up with Hollywood Wade. I'll edit that part out. <laughs> Good storytelling there, as always, from your guest, Hollywood Wade. And I just got to say, you're getting into that stratosphere of the long podcast. And you, you learn with the internet, shorter is better. Uh-uh. Giant and bigger gets better and better as people get more used to, I guess, hanging out with you here on the audio airwaves. So nicely done. Absolutely. You know, that's been a long kind of, 
battle back and forth. It's better. People say their attention span is better for five minutes, eight minutes. Some say that sweet spot is like 10 minute mark. And, you know, I could do that, but frankly, I don't really have all fucking day to sit here and give you 10 minute segments of a two and a half hour interview. I don't, I don't want people fucking wearing their thumbs out clicking. Just go ahead. I'll bust it into two parts for you because I know you don't have all day to listen to me run my yapper, but you can probably space it out in two episodes there over a weekend and knock it out. And I mean, we're going to keep bringing these guests down the pipe. We've got another great episode coming up here in a couple of weeks about a guy that actually went undercover and infiltrated one of the biggest and baddest motorcycle groups ever, the Hells Angels. You know, I've heard of them. We've mm-hmm. actually had some motorcycle group stories that we could share, but yes. it's not about us, pal. That was a yeah, long time right. ago, and we yeah. survived it. This one wasn't the Angels. <laughs> I, I ain't even going to say the, the name of this club, but they were. Uh, they kind of came up to us and looked like some business was about to pick up. Luckily, cooler heads prevailed. And at the time I didn't even know who these people were. They weren't smiling at all. There's nothing like the biker gang wants to kill you. And you're like, who are you now? (laughs) Yeah. And I'm sitting there. It's like a fucking year later and I'm watching the history channel and gangland comes on and lo and behold, the biker gang that is, you know, explaining about, is right there on my television. I had to give you your calls. Like, hey, you remember that time we about got into it with those bikers? Yeah, I was like, turn on the history channel and take a look. <laughs> you know, for the record, I think they might have been a little bit more mad at you than me, all right? <laughs> Still, I want nothing to do with them. Uh, I, I didn't know. even name them. <laughs> I don't even know, remember those uh, half of those stories. It could have been either or. <laughs> a lot of uh, good times there at Hollywood. <laughs> absolutely. And speaking of good times, this was a good time with Tim McBride. Like I said, I'm going to plug his book one more time, folks. Go get that. The Saltwater Cowboy, The Rising fall of a marijuana empire a lot more detail in the book a lot more stories a good narrator too um and i can't remember his name right off the bat i think it west something but a great narrator it's easy to follow along he's got a way like i said in that first episode of taking you to where he's explaining to in the book whether he's talking about he's near water or in the woods or whatever he's got a way of putting you in that place just by his words and not any and everybody can pull that off. Yeager, I'm assuming you know what I'm talking about there. Well, absolutely. This whole talking thing isn't quite as easy as just get up there. And I like you talking to your friends. As a matter of fact, that might be some of the worst advice. <laughs> there is a little bit of showmanship and presentation that goes on to speaking on the mic. One day, I'm going to figure that out. Absolutely. I still don't have it down yet. <laughs> I know. I probably got a look like my SD cards coming up on about full and I've got a shitload of cuts and retakes and redos and mess ups in there. I mean, it, you think it was be easy, but folks, I tell you, it's not. Yeah. But we get it done for you as we try to pump them out once a week. Every now and again, you might have to give us a week. You know, we got lives and jobs and everything going on, but we're going to try to keep pumping out this good content. And unfortunately, you know, sometimes I say all good things come to an end. We've got a bit of news here to share on Crime and Entertainment. Yeager Tetter is planning to take a little more of a backseat role here and go mm-hmm. behind the scenes, mm-hmm. at least for the foreseeable future. Yeah. This will be your last crime and entertainment episode. I'm sure you'll pop back in for some surprise yeah, yeah. spots here and there. Yeah, but. I'm not dying. No one's dead. Yeah. The dog's still alive. <laughs> Everything is okay. I put out three videos over on my JaegerShots.com website and Photo70.com doing the photo biz is my day job. Everything's still a okay. But Hollywood Wade, 
I've told you off camera. I always knew you were built for podcasting. You never needed a co-host. You can go ahead and fly the plane solo at this point, my friend. But I hear you've got some great guests coming up in the future here on Crime and Entertainment. So the people are going to be able to still be entertained. You're not leaving anyone alone. This thing is fine. It's fantastic. If anything, I'm just a guy looking off from the side like, man. This ship is going to sail. <laughs> I don't know if I even had anything to do with it. Well, absolutely. This thing going st- what, smooth. What people may not know is that, like you said, though, you have uh, been in the photography business for quite a while. You do have your own YouTube channel, your own podcast yourself. Yep. So you yep. were involved in a lot of this before me. And like he said, he had been trying to get me into this game for a long time. Folks, I didn't even listen to podcasts until probably maybe a really? year ago. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'd fantastic. watched a Joe Rogan or two on YouTube, but never a, a standalone like podcast session mm-hmm. until about a year and a half ago. And then it kind of, you know, boosted me up a little bit and I tried to, you know, come up with some own ideas. And lo and behold, here we have crime and entertainment and it's, it's really taken off. I mean, yeah. we've got some new additions to the clothing line. We had some clothes earlier in the year, but I didn't quite like the way they looked. They weren't good enough for me to send out to you people if you guys wanted to rock one of our shirts but i believe we've got it dialed in now they look great they look crisp they're on some different colors they're on hoodies short sleeves long sleeves so we'll be Mm -hmm. getting all that set up on the website there but yeager we definitely want to appreciate everything everything you've done here (laughs) at crime and entertainment and you know we wish you nothing but the best with your channel and your success and everything you got over there. And I'm yeah. sure, like we said, you'll be back for a surprise episode here and there for our yeah, guests. I'm, I'm just hanging out right down the street, right around the corner. I'm not far away <laughs> not at all. And it's been a great ride here with crime and entertainment. The only place you can get your crime and entertainment is here on Crime and Entertainment. <laughs> I feel like we've delivered on that. Absolutely. And again, folks, if you aren't following our Facebook page, go ahead and do that. Go ahead and follow us on Instagram as well. And we are on all the major podcast platforms. You got Spotify. We're on there. You say, I don't know. I'm a, I'm an Apple guy. I'm Apple podcast. We're on there too. Mm-hmm. And you don't have an Apple, you know, I don't want to get in any subscription stuff there, Hollywood. I'll tell you what, go download the Stitcher app is mm-hmm. absolutely free. It's on any Android, Apple, Google iOS, podcast. whatever you have. We're on there. You smoke don't need a signals. subscription. <laughs> and smoke signals. Yeah, we got that too. Fan of the flame right now. Try to get that on? guy up here that was uh, at Obama's press conference at that time, just doing all that crazy ass sign language. The Nobody had any idea language. who he was. Yeah. Up. <laughs> I was like, I guess this is accurate. Nobody knew who the he hell he was. <laughs> I think he I remember was, something. Yeah, about he was. It was a address or a speech or something Obama was giving, and that fucker's <laughs> over there just hand signaling left and right and at the end of it like he finished it and nobody had a clue who he was where he come from he had no credentials to be up there or nothing well that's that great that's all he did was some sign language yeah. i guess so we'll get that man we'll get him on the show let him sit back there and uh you know put something <laughs> yeah he never reminds me you definitely want to subscribe on the youtube we're not saying that guy's coming but watch the videos on yeah. youtube anyways yeah <laughs> we put a lot going. of work into the youtube stuff that's probably the most work out of it all to be quite yeah. honest with you editing the video and and things like that it's a lot of work that goes into there so sometimes if we do a regular just talking podcast episode that might not be uploaded to the youtube because quite frankly i did a break because that's a lot of work especially if you're like me Mm. and you don't really have a long history with this or an extended background this sort of thing i'm learning on the fly so i hope you enjoy what we're putting out Jaeger, like I said again, from the bottom of my heart, we want to appreciate you coming on here, helping us out, getting us started, getting us rolling, and you're welcome back anytime you want, pal. Thanks, pal. Pleasure. All righty. Well, folks, I am Hollywood Wade. That 
with Jaeger Yance, et cetera. And unfortunately, we are out of time. Tune in next week for an all-new episode of Crime and Entertainment.